Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of the Practical Futurist Podcast. We had such an amazing response to Series 1 that we're back again. As my first guest of the series, I'm delighted to welcome Nick Coleman, who is IBM's Global Head of Cybersecurity Risk, where he specialises in evaluating risk from cyber adversaries, digital transformation and regulation. Before joining IBM, he served as the UK government's National Reviewer of Security and authored the Coleman Report for the UK Parliament. Nick also holds an MBA with distinction and is a fellow and chair of digital at the Institution of Engineering and Technology. He regularly advises boards around the world on digital leadership and how to manage the risks that result from traditional and emerging business models and how to create trust and resilience. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Great to be here. So, the start of 2020, where are we in terms of cybersecurity and where are we going? So I think it's uh, it's a topic which gets into every discussion now. And I think that's partly because we're so digitally connected and dependent. I mean, all of our lives either are digital or actually enabled through digital, whether you're traveling, whether you're healthcare, whether you, you know, um, your, your financial services, everything um, from government services and, and the like. And and I think what we've seen is as we've risen the digital, we've also seen a number of risks evolve um, and, and the attacks evolve. So there's been a whole spate of attacks which have been financially motivated um, and there's a criminal industry which has grown out of it. So we've kind of grown to a world where cyber is now a risk that people are understanding. What we haven't quite got to is we haven't got a level of hygiene in some of our infrastructure to be able to repel some of those attacks. And there is some some organizations which are still learning how to be ready to deal with these challenges, uh, leaders and organizations. So I know you do a lot with the World Economic Forum, and they've actually identified cybersecurity as one of the top risks throughout the world. And it's right up there with climate change, extreme weather and natural disasters. With the recent fires in my homeland of Australia, many are now saying we really are undergoing a climate emergency. So if the WF are picking up cyber alongside climate change as the top global risk, are we at the stage of declaring a cyber emergency or are people just not listening to the warnings anymore? It's a great, it's a great question. I and mean, is it an emergency? I think if I, if I look at the global risk report that the World Economic Forum pulled together of global leaders, so it was, it was leaders talking about the impact to business and, and the risk which faced them. And climate was one. And, and, and as you say, cyber risk was, was identified as another in the top five. Um, it, the, the challenge has grown the impact is growing to organizations um, and you know there are the, the the volume of of impact is also growing so this is kind of a frequency um, uh, uh, a higher probability a higher impact level you know so if you kind of look at the risk well what's the likelihood it's going to happen to me kind of high and that's what you're seeing and also what's the likelihood it's going to be disruptive and you're seeing all of those metrics are growing i think if i remember one statistic from there's, there's, a, there's a great survey from the poneman institute of the cost of a data breach of 2019 and it said the average 
um, uh, time to identify and remediate a breach was now 279 days. That's most of a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. And actually, if you, as the days go up, the cost and the implications also go up to the organization. So it, is it that, um, that we, we have a higher risk? Absolutely. Uh, a number of, you know, the growth in terms of the complexity um, of the threat and, and, and the number of people who are doing it, um, the sophistication of attack and the impacts that's causing all have gone up for sure. And the disruption as we more as we grow our digital connections is also growing. And then if you kind of look at how well we've built some of the capabilities, it's not that people haven't built capabilities. It's just we have to get smarter. We have to get that 279 days and be and be more agile in our response and be quicker about actually recognizing things and being able to respond so that when you start to see these patterns of attack, you as an organization can go, I think there's something which is happening there. A little bit like some of the other patterns you talk about, the other risks, you kind of, can we spot a pattern? Can we think, ah, oh, that's something which is happening. How do I immediately start to galvanize my defense and resources, minimize the impact maximize our resilience. Now, you're a practitioner in this space, so you are an expert. I dabble here because I'm a futurist. And in fact, the connection to disruption, I talk about disruption all the time. I think cyber is now another level of disruption. But I think the average person on the street really only a couple of years ago realized the impact when the ransomware, the WannaCry, disrupted organizations like NHS and WPP and Maersk. And even as we record, I think Travelex sort have of got their website down. Do you think it's going to take more attacks like that for the consumer to say, you know, we really worry about this and we want government to do something and, and, and have a step change in, in being aware that, th that this is a risk to the economy? So I think from a consumer perspective, we're going to think about resilience of services because, you know, whether it's an IT failure or whether it's a cyber attack, the answer is if my service isn't running and I can't get access to the service and I, uh, that's a... Yeah, can be a frustration or actually can have more serious consequences if, you know, if it's a, a requirement for a whole bunch of things that might be financial to pay the mortgage. It might be um, it might be a hospital appointment, which then can, can have other impacts. So I think from a consumer point of view, we look at resilience and we kind of I mean, it's not a word I think consumers would use, mm. but it's actually kind of how do we maintain the trust of those people who we serve, both in the public and private sector, as citizens, consumers, that the services are, are resilient, that there is enough resiliency planning in there so that you can protect and you can respond. And again, kind of what's the impact that that level of disruption, which is increasingly seen, and we're going to see more of it for sure, um, we can we can minimize that impact to, to the consumer to the business to the to the to the society at large and, and that seems to be you know the question i think everybody should be asking you know in the organizations i'm dealing with how how resilient are they planning and you know and it is my you know and, and and simple questions that they can ask those organizations so should executives and the board be cyber aware should there be more awareness at the board level and should they go on courses so they understand the impacts and therefore when someone comes to them with a proposal for multi-million pounds to defend the against uh, an attack, they say, well, of course, we're going to fund that. Where's education play a role in this? Uh, it plays a huge role. Um, and I think uh, the, 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 a personal passion of mine, so I, um, I'm a visiting professor at Lancaster University, 
and um, I've worked with a number of universities now um, about how we teach business school, uh, uh, both the current and, you know, both the execs and also the current crop coming through. How do we teach them to think about the digital risks of society? And I'm very clear that, you know, cyber risk is one of the digital risks, but there are, you know, in, in the world that everybody's emerging, then their world is underpinned by digital. And this is kind of, well, OK, so how do I know that I've understood the digital risk? I've asked the right questions. And, uh, um, and then I'm ready to respond. So I think the education bit is both a literacy thing. And um, I've led a whole bunch of things in 2019 to rewrite some of the, the materials to make it business, not technical. So we'd start mm. with the business and then we grow in the technology rather than the technology trying to grow in the business. And by that, we find a language which boards and leaders can understand because it's their language of risk and it's their language of, of resilience and, and, and how to run an organization. And so I think part of it is literacy. And then I think it's about capability. So it's both capability of control and both capability of, of, of organization to know they've got enough and an appropriate agile defense. And then the other big piece of education is about how, how ready for a crisis are they. Mm. Um, and the, the studies show that the more you're prepared, the more, you know, I think some of us think um, when you go on an aeroplane, if for those of us who go on aeroplanes and you hear the safety advice and, you know, you go, oh, here it is again. And the, the studies show both in those kind of environments and also in, in cyber attacks that the more prepared you are, the better you are when it comes to an event that you can really handle. You have the processes, you have the experience, and you have this thing called muscle memory. And so um, it's. So I think the education is both the literacy, it's about the controls and what kind of questions and due diligence we need to ask, and then it's about your role and preparedness and the capability you might need. You know, how do you candidly speak to the media in the moment of a crisis? What do you say, knowing that also the adversary, the attacker, may be listening to you and, you know, and if it's a live event, then you have to plan that. So so there are some great um, um, ways to think that through. And I'm, you know, pleased to see the business schools are starting. Um, and I'm really delighted. I've been passionate about it personally to, to start to get business schools to really teach it as a business subject and, 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 and give them that skills in an exec format, which works. And, and that's, that's So maybe we need to start doing cyber fire drills. I mean, most organizations have a fire drill every month or every quarter. And that muscle memory kicks and even if you haven't listened to it, yeah, the exits are here. But I think it goes deeper because it's about technology, and it's about technology you can't see. So if there's a fire, you know where the fire is, you know not to go near it. But if there's a threat happening in your IT system and you can't see it and you're not a practitioner like you, um, maybe we need to do fire drills. Who has the key to the wall room? Who has the access to the Twitter account? Um, who's got the, the, the emergency phone numbers? Are there things that people can be doing now to plan for that cyber fire drill? Yes, yeah, so uh, absolutely. Um, uh, I was involved uh, last year in the launch of uh, something called the IBM Mobile Cyber Command. And this is a 23 megaton um, lorry or truck in, in, in the vocabulary. And what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, an, it's a vehicle which actually acts as a training center. And we have schools, we have executives who come through, and they train for exactly that scenario. And so it's a real live, it's got a data center in the truck, it's got the best comms, and you've got you know video walls which show real-time things from everything from stock tickers to show social media to show actually some of the patterns of intelligence. And I think the, 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 
there's two bits. One is, first of all, organization and leaders have got to know what kind of patterns they can start to see. So it's, it's not that you can't see an attack. You just need to have the the, the artificial intelligence-enabled solutions are increasingly which can pull together um, patterns and show you what's happening from one part, you know, because some of the attacks are pretty, you know, um, they, they tend to try and hide in the organization. So there might be little things happening, but actually pulling those together and seeing a picture is important. And so being able to recognize where you are and what's really happening is one thing. And then being able to actually understand how to prioritize um, what do you do? What are the order? Who makes the decision about whether to unplug different systems and what the business impacts are? And these are kind of business-led questions. These are not IT questions. These are IT questions in terms of, yeah, it, it is a technology question, but ultimately it's a business decision about the risk. And so, yeah, so from a, um, what we've seen is a whole bunch of people come through and test two things. One is sort of their, their own capabilities and also how they as a team work. Um, the reality for most people is that they're not all going to be in the same room when those events happen. So how you communicate and how you deal with it and how you build those relationships and how you have plans which are able to deal with the fact that you might not have what you expect, the telephone directory and some very simple things in that moment of crisis. So there's a, there's a role for education in getting leaders ready, doing the due diligence so the systems are absolutely resilient in line with the business appetite understanding a little bit also about the regulatory context because that's also changed and then this bit about actually being prepared for the crisis and um, uh, I think are all really important bits. You touched on a couple of things there, AI and regulation, I want to pick them apart. So it's clear that AI is going to have to be deployed here because the attacks are becoming more sophisticated, they happen very quickly. If AI can learn what's going on and then help the humans decide to decode that, but on the flip side, are not the criminals getting smarter and aren't they starting to use AI to beat the AI of the defender? Are we in a sort of a yin and a yang that we learn and then they learn faster? Is this an AI war? Um, well, I, I think uh, so artificial intelligence and, and there are a whole, uh, you know, and that we can talk about machine learning and a whole bunch of different elements to artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence for me is, 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 is two sides of a coin. On one side, as we... You see businesses and, or, and organizations roll out and em enable things for artificial intelligence. I, I think my toothbrush is getting oh, increasingly yes. artificial intelligence embedded. Um, and I make that as a sort of a lighthearted. Uh, what it means for all of us is we're getting AI and machine learning in, in, in a whole set of devices from uh, things which sit on our kitchen tables to, to, to all the way to traffic lights and a, and a whole bunch of things behind. And so we have a challenge that the digital world that we're evolving is increasingly AI enabled, and we have to think about how we move protection. And so I'm doing some work now with leaders around the world about thinking, and we, we spent about six months really in depth working out you know, how the future of the AI model has to be played. And then the second bit, which you, you touch on is, so in terms of AI, both as a defense and attack, how are we going to have that, that ability? And are, are, the, are the adversaries going to use AI? And I think the answer is absolutely. They're probably doing it already. Um, and, and it's still evolving and, you know, sophisticated. And there are some, some, some things about, you know, we may get 
increasingly hyper-personalized attacks. So, you know, AI will be used to learn how you and your email system and how you sign signatures. And we've already seen a bit of that, but yeah. it, it will start to learn how you communicate and all that kind of thing. And then will be much more tailored to you as an individual. So, so we might see more precision. On the other flip side, as you say, we'll be able to get to a world, and we already are, where we're employing uh, some of the technologies to really see patterns. Um, and also that's helping um, with protection as well. So where you're getting, for example, uh, how to sign on to systems and, and, and your access, now you can use artificial intelligence to start to understand some of those patterns and whether who should be able and whether what looks normal and what looks abnormal rather than the probably traditional, which is you just signed on. So 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 kind of it's a... It's a having to protect the world, the digital world we're evolving, the AI world, and also then using cybersecurity, understanding the threat is going to be changing and using more AI. And how do you then use your defense to be agile um, across the different stages of security from sort of identifying the risk all the way to protecting and defending it? You brought up the toothbrush, and this brings us to the fact that everything's now becoming connected. IAT, Internet of Things, we've got Bluetooth-enabled toothbrushes, we've got um, Nest thermostats. I think we're going to start to see, so you talk about hyper-personalized attacks. If I want to attack the CEO or the CFO of a particular company, and I know where he or she lives, I'm then, I suppose, fighting the uh, attack on a personal level at their home level. And if I know they've got some IAT devices, that brings a whole new things into it. So... Is the awareness not just at a corporate level about firewalls and gateways and email phishing campaigns and those sort of things, but also I think the last mile actually is down to the employee. If you compromise your own security by emailing passwords on Gmail or you have unprotected IoT devices at home, should we not also be getting down to the employee level to say you are actually part of the solution if you're the weakest link in many ways? I think employees, um, I mean, I think employees are just one group. I mean, citizens are a group, employees are a group, you know, you, you get, um, uh, you know, you even get parents. I mean, like, I remember doing this thing with the European Union a couple of years ago, and they were saying, well, you know, let's do the Security Awareness Month. And I said, well, the first thing we should define is, you know, you have multiple roles as a, as a person. And the reality is security should be embedded into all those roles. You know, if you're a parent, then that might be about how, you know, you work with your children and where, how you work with the school to do that and where you need to have biometrics and other techniques to be able to protect those environments. And similarly, in the home environment, yes, I think the takeaway is understand the role. Second, um, make the security appropriate for that for that environment. Um, you know, you have to manage it with the risk, you, you know, and that's a cost thing, but also a pragmatic thing about how you run these environments. And the third thing is working out what the critical bits are and who owns them. So, you know, if you take the employee scenario, what you're typically doing is you're, you're maybe working from home. Well, that means that your responsibility is to make sure that you're protecting the corporation and the organization that you work for. And so, so yes, I think we can think about, you know, those different roles. I think we should also understand that attackers tend to go for the easy things sometimes. Yeah. And so if, frankly, it's an easy thing to get people to click on links and people go, I've just won the lottery, let me click and see if I really have, you know, then the attackers will continue to do it by the... To, to, so while we worry about sort of the really targeted, sophisticated, which is also important, we also are 
our, our role is really to take it that the hygiene as high as we can in the easiest way to what I would describe as remove the noise. Mm. Just remove the noise and then you can focus on the really on the really yeah, bad yeah. stuff that might come really put. And if you're doing the hygiene, both at a personal level and, and also as a corporate, uh, an organization, then it's easier for you to have the hygiene which removes some of that noise and then focus on the targeted sophisticated, which still may be there in some specific examples. I mean, it's got to be frictionless. I think of the whole notion of VPNs. Most people listening here would know what a virtual private network is. Some people use it to watch television in other countries they shouldn't be able to. Uh, people like you and I probably use it to protect the, the tunnel that we're using back to the corporate mainframe. But if you have to actually flick a switch and do all this, this friction, then I think people will go around that. So how can we make cybersecurity in the different roles that we play completely frictionless? Is it is it possible? Well, I, I, th- I think it. I, th- I think it will never become totally frictionless. And there's some and there's some good things about having some friction because actually it makes it a conscious decision. Um, I think if you think about coming to a, a country and going through passport control, there's a, you know you put your thing on the reader. Could we do it in different ways? Yeah, but there's a process and a reason for doing some of those processes. Um, and I, I think so. So it's not that it necessarily needs to be zero friction. I think it needs to be proportionate and 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 usable. And I think the the challenge is if you make it really difficult, then people find workarounds. So, so, you know, I think I look at some of the banking examples of the last couple of years and you know how they've used biometrics to really be able to authenticate both voice biometrics and and other biometrics uh, with a whole load of other security mechanisms working. From the user perspective, it's some of it has become really simple. I look at my phone and I'm on my banking app. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that might, that's example of where we have to be agile in terms of the both solution, but also behind that, we have to use multiple points to really understand it is still truly you. Mm. So is it your phone? Is it your location? Is yeah. it? And then I, I think the thing is that we, the friction can be spread across the across the transaction. So if you start to do something unusual in an organization, in your banking app or something, can we understand what abnormal looks like? And that might be for a whole bunch of reasons, cyber being one of them. But suddenly this is that's not usual. That doesn't look right. That maybe that outcome shouldn't be working like that and really focus resources to kind of go, hang on, can we just verify that it is? Can we put an additional check in? And so we'll hopefully get to a world where the hygiene is good, the usability is kind of embedded um, and proportionate in different stages. I think the final thing I'd say is the embedded thing. When you just talk about your phone and looking at it and being on, that's because it's been built in. And I think where we find a lot of friction is where it hasn't been built in. So where I think we'll end up with, and uh, again, something I'm pretty passionate about, is engineering cybersecurity into build. Um, So it's not something which is done later, which often costs more money, but is also part of that solution that you get in the car, in the in the in the bank, in the utility, that actually cyber is part of the process. And what that and ultimately means is it's built for you, but usability, but it's also built as part of the risk profile of building. And I, I think, you know, we've got into a world where we're testing a whole bunch of uh, infrastructure to check for challenges and then remediating them. And we'll still need to do that. Where we see goodness is, is you know, where that also goes further and where the engineers themselves are starting to think about their digital transformations and how they engineer security in. Uh, as part of the build process, checking code, checking all the things as they actually build systems that securely 
as uh, has has been addressed in each of those stages. We talked a while ago about being mobile first, maybe now it's cyber first, that when you do the code review, when you design the digital transformation process, you build it in. And it sounds like the sort of things that have to happen in the background can only be done at scale if you've got processing power and AI and everything else. And that, that means cost. i very fortunate in what I do. I generally talk to the C-suite of some of the largest organizations in the world, and I get a chance under off, under um, NDA often to understand what they're spending their money on. And most companies, especially law firms, maybe it's remediation, are saying, we just spent a truckload of money last year on cyber, in air quotes. They're probably not quite sure what they've spent it on, but someone has said they need it. Um, two reasons. One is I think they're now seeing there's a risk there and they've got to protect their risk and their insurance company may have said your premiums go up unless we have a, a view of your cyber security strategy. But the second thing is regulation and you mentioned this before, I just want to touch on that because being compliant with regulations such as GDPR have changed the cybersecurity landscape now. So risk management means you have to think about the regulatory compliance as well as security and controls and be agile and ready for the cloud model. Do you think the growth in cloud services has provided more of a threat than before? And what can be done to balance the convenience of cloud with end user security? So just taking that apart, I mean, there's GDPR. There's also something called the NIS Directive, which doesn't get much uh, as much publicity. Not as sexy as GDPR. <laughs> um, so that's a specific piece of, of cybersecurity legislation. And what it did was um, uh, it... it it, it essentially identified for all the countries in Europe, uh, including the UK, that we needed to focus on what critical infrastructure sectors and name critical infrastructure providers and make it clear that there were specific requirements. So telco, water, power. Yeah, so the financial services, yep. exactly, um, et cetera. Um, it also had a provision in there for cloud services uh, at a lesser threshold and said, look, where there's cloud services, those will also now need to be regulated. And so, so, so yes, uh, in addition to data protection, which also has, as you say, GDPR has security implications, um, there is cyber regulation as well, specifically now enacted and, and, and live in the environment, already passed and enacted, same kind of timescales as GDPR. Um, I remember I was involved in some of these discussions uh, when I helped launch the uh, Latvian presidency in Riga, uh, where we actually started to shape some of that legislation with them. So, um, so, so, so yes, it's a regulatory. If I come back to sort of um, how, what does that mean in practice, um, and what it, you know, if you're an organisation, be that one of those law firms or anything, and you're kind of having this, well, well I'm spending it. Um, it comes down to, well, I need to be able to demonstrate that I've got controls which meet the regulatory requirements and the risk portfolio that I'm running and, and are applied in context of my organization. Um, and, and for sure, if you look at organizations, many of them have been building out frameworks. Um, uh, the, there's, a, there's a framework from the National Institute of Standards and Technology called the Cybersecurity Framework, um, which has proved a backdrop for many, which has been great um, in terms of how to actually think about the problem. Um, and it has five stages. And so there, there is uh, identify, um, protect, detect, respond, and recover as a, as a simple method of, of thinking about the challenge and then a whole bunch of steps. And you can apply this and regulatory controls in terms of that creating that framework and that landscape. And then I think the question is, well, so in this thing, how do I demonstrate that I've got adequate controls and I can show that I've done the due diligence and the proportionality. And this is about really then having ability 
to translate that into, well, so this is the capability, this is how we've done it, and this is how we can evidence it through audit and assurance. And so uh, uh, very much sort of uh, links to some of the things you talked about. Insurance have also got into this about, you know, can you demonstrate it? You know, can we offset premiums and things like that? So so absolutely um, regulatory is there. Um, the thing I'd say, the, the, the other thing I'd say about regulation is um, you have both industry regulations, so you have banking regulations and you have uh, other sectors regulating. And then you have these sort of horizontal data and cyber and other things. And, you know, so the world is getting a little bit more complex in terms of, especially for organizations who do business internationally. We've had sort of in California, we've had a Privacy Act just en just mm. enabled 1st yeah. of January. So, you know, for organizations who are who are working internationally, which for most of us is increasingly right, um, then we have to think about how those controls can be agile to meet many needs. And so what what some people have got stuck on is, well, let's have a program to do this piece of regulation. And then suddenly another one's come on. And then suddenly it's kind of, well, OK, do we need to do a delta for that? And the leading organizations I've been you know, uh, speaking to have really started to understand that it's about capability. And then you can map it to different regulatory obligations in different jurisdictions. But ultimately, you have a you have a model which gives you flexibility and you get a rule of, you know, meeting a certain threshold. And then if there's a particular requirement or a particular operating environment which requires more, you can always increment. But you kind of come to a cost effective baseline which gives you things that enable you to get that hygiene going and, and, and monitor it. So it, it, it's been a catalyst for sure. Um, the challenge is making it complexity, not a cost overhead, which is unbearable. You mentioned complexity. This is an incredibly complex area, which is changing all the time. So who is educating the regulators? They understand how their regulation needs to adapt and be agile for what's going on and the threats that are evolving. And is there a skills gap? And how do we address that in secondary school and universities so that we've got more and more people that want to move into that and apply their knowledge and thinking and business prowess to stop these threats and, and protect us? So de dealing, I mean, a lot of this regulation to deal with the first point is, is relatively new. So so part of this journey is to actually have that discussion evolving. And I think a number of the regulators have, have really been very open to understanding how the legislation is translating into operating environments and making sure that what their objectives are, are realistic. So, so I, I think it's a journey. Um, I think that a number of them have to grow their own cyber skills. And that's a new thing. So you've seen a number of regulators try and build their skills. Um, and and I think there is still this area where, you know, through some of the uh, activities, these these regulators are continuing to try and form ecosystems to be able to do that. Some of those have to be new because they've been used to it in traditional environments. So banking, for example, is is, is more sophisticated. Some of the other regulated sectors, transport and others, have probably not had these discussions mm. in that same way. And then we talk about skills gap and pipeline. And, and um, uh, I, I think, first of all, is we have to get better at getting role models. Um, and so kind of podcasts like this for me are kind of a little bit of where we have to engage in new and different ways to make it understandable of what, what an exciting world this is. You know, this is a mm. digitally transformed world and this is an exciting place to do it. And you can do amazing things in that career. 
And so for secondary education, um, I mean, there are a number of things. You know, we see governments doing girls' competitions to get more girls in, uh, literally in schools, and that's been hugely successful in in, in different uh, schools, in different competitions, in different parts of the world, um, and truly brilliant. Um, you've seen a number of initiatives from private sector. There's something called P-TECH, which was started in the U.S. and is rolling out, which is about college and getting people interested in, in effectively vocational um, uh, um, an, an industry engagement um, to really shape their careers in these things. And so I, I think there are, it comes down to, can we excite people about the opportunity and make it interesting? And that for me is about uh, wider than just cyber. That's about science, technology, engineering, maths, the STEM analogy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember I met Tim Peake from, uh, who was the astronaut, astronaut went to yeah, speak. Yeah. And, and, you know, I had the privilege of meeting him, I think, last year. And, and, uh, and, and you know, in that discussion, um, the, the, the reality was he was enabled, able to explain space. And, you know, yes, it's a physical concept. And that inspires so many people. And we have to do the same in cybersecurity. And so I think role models and doing that is important. And then I think literally like, again, maybe a little bit like space, but a little bit broader because I think we can get more audience and we've got more capacity. Then we think about how we can get people into those STEM subjects and really thinking about how we we also advertise that there are true opportunities to build and and, and, and develop their careers. The, the final thing for me is, is a little bit about where the world is heading. And so I think as we talk on a podcast today, you know, I say this again, digital enablement. Um, this is about if we think about our phones, they have apps and we think about. And, and so getting the next, the, the people in secondary school with the opportunity to figure out how to code with AI, how to actually start to use and experience this stuff. Um, to me is also part of the challenge. So they don't just become consumers, but they actually become enabled digital citizens. Yes. And I, I see that in, you know, in the Nordics and other parts of the world where they're really trying to get AI and all these topics into schools, but also practically touching people. And, and, and I know we're doing lots of it in lots of countries. Um, to me, I, I think that's our, our next challenge. Final question before I ask you about your three things for next week. We've talked about the response from governments, but what can you do if you're, say, a small charity, a multinational, or someone sitting at home listening to this podcast? What can they do? So I think it's a, a great question. I mean, I, I think that uh, there is a lot of advice out there. And I think, you know, um, uh, the first thing is you, you should ideally have somebody in your network who is from accredited by one of the professional bodies, uh, you know, and has, has some 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 accreditations, who can be um, almost in the network as a trusted advisor and say, kind of, okay, well, what does it mean for us, and what are we? And then the second thing I think, if you're a charity, is you should have the conversation at the board, you know, yes, kind yes. of kind of as a trustees when you meet, you know, kind of what does this mean to us? We talk about risk, but have we talked about cyber risk? Um, yeah, and almost kind of what does it mean to us? What is the critical data we hold? What is it? Do we hold stuff? So I talked to one charity um, uh, who who did stuff in in medical, the, uh, in in, uh, in youth health actually, mm. um, and you know they understood that they hold sensitive records. And I was kind of saying, well, okay, so how did that relate to your infrastructure? And they said, well, you know, that's our journey. And so we started just to have that simple question about, well, where's the risk? Who are the, you know. The, the other advantage to some of this is in some of those organizations, you know, that one I think had 
five employees. And so actually the challenges are, are you know, easily addressable and through adopting cloud and other solutions, they could really get best of breed. So this wasn't kind of a really cost expensive thing. It was a process thing. It was a practical thing. It was how we digest this and get the basics right and, and kind of um, and what they really wanted is they said, look, you know, what we always look for is just practical advice. We're not we don't we want to spend cost effective and, you know, we're a charity at the end of the day. Um, but we also understand that we may have some critical assets, but at the same time, we may also have people who are looking at the weather on the internet. And, you know, like all organizations, it has to be risk-based and actually let's protect what matters. Let's do the hygiene. And yeah, we should also probably be ready for a crisis just to know who the, who would one would call in the five, yeah. how they would do it and what the role of the, of the key, of the key people be. So as this is the Practical Futures podcast, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. What three things can our listeners be doing this week to ensure they're protecting themselves from cyber attacks? So I think the first thing they, they should do is think about their, their lives and think about what's critical. And have they thought about what matters and what, you know, what's critical? The, the second thing is thinking about what good looks like. So, you know, ha, ha, what's acceptable as a risk level? So I think identify what then think about the risk. And the third thing is, if the bad thing happens, what would I do? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to worry? Um, and who would you look to for, you know, if you if you need to get, I mean, practical advice, where do you go? I think if, and I put this down to practicalities. I mean, if you're in a corporate organization, you know, they, they should be aware of how those incidents... And not be afraid to say, like, something small might be happening, which you may not think is a risk, but somebody else may want to. So just, you know, positively report things which may look suspicious. You know, that's what we hear all the time. The the, the, the final thing on, on the sort of who would you call is think about it in your personal journeys. Think about it when you go abroad. You kind of in your mind think, hang on, what happens if I get sicker while I'm traveling? Um, who am I going to call? Well, how am I going to get home? Who is going to give me the local doctor? And so for this, it's like identify what matters. Think about what the appropriate, if you've got a level of risk that actually you think is not quite right. Um, can you talk to other people if you're in an environment which can share that and understand whether they have a similar perspective? You know, in, in work environments, that's really important. In business environments, in leadership, you know, that's important. And then this bit about, well, what, what will I do? And, and can I make it practical? And do I, do I have a backup if my phone f actually doesn't switch on? You know, how will I go through that experience? Nick, thank you so much. How can people find out more about you and your work? So I'm I'm a bit on social media platforms like LinkedIn. Uh, people are welcome to reach out, and I'd be, I'd be delighted. And then uh, and then simply some 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 of the other institutions I'm involved in, uh, I'm, I'm available. And uh, you know I I think this is such an exciting world, and uh, the more we can do to help everybody get to understand the risk is is important. Nick, I've learned so much today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.